Good morning, church. Good to see you out on this this snowy morning. Wasn't sure quite how many to expect with the roads that uh, that they're uh, in the way that they are, but I'm glad to see you all here, and uh, glad to be able to um, look forward with a, a week away to Christmas to celebrate the coming of our Savior Jesus. Uh, a couple of announcements uh, in that vein as we get started this morning, just to make you aware of what. Uh, what to expect for our, our Christmas services next weekend. We'll have our Christmas Eve service on Saturday evening at 7 p.m. Um, so after your Christmas Eve dinner and before your late night present wrapping, come here and we'll, we'll celebrate. We'll go through the, uh, the Christmas story in Luke, uh, and have some scripture readings there, as well as singing some carols together. So that's always a sweet time. One of my, one of my favorite services of the year. So please join us for that at 7 o'clock on Christmas Eve. And then on Christmas Day, we will have, that's a Sunday, so we'll have our, our worship services as usual at 1030 um, to celebrate the coming of our Savior. We won't have Sunday school that morning, so take your time, open your presents, and then come and we'll, we'll celebrate the coming of the, the greatest gift, which is Jesus. Um, and the last thing I have to mention is uh, Miranda and I are, hoping, op, are hosting our Christmas open house this evening from around 4 to 8, so feel free to swing by, and we'd love to have you there. Um, Miranda will have soup and bread aplenty, plenty of food, but feel free to bring a snack or a dessert if you want to share something. So we'd love to have you there. I think that's all I have for announcements this morning. I have one. Dean. Good morning, church. Um, like the pastor said, not much of a crowd today, but uh, we are here to, to celebrate him and, and let us not forget that, I guess, and no matter how many is here. Um, the first announcement I wanted to make was that the, the deacons have, have been able to help some people, which is very nice, and, and, but we do need help finding out um, who may need some help in our neighborhood, in our community, and, and sometimes we you know, we'll go around thinking everybody is okay. And if you see a neighbor in need of something, just please contact one of the leaders and, and maybe they can get you in the right spot to be able to help somebody. And, and uh, as a small church, we love to help and we want to help. So, um, so if you can think of anybody, just um, approach one of the leaders or the pastor, of course. And, and the other is um, I'd like to, to be able to talk about... Uh, the cookout, annual cookout every year. So I, I'm trying to think of a date um, sometime in January to get together. Uh, whoever wants to come to talk about that cookout, um, just so that way there we can kind of prepare for it a little earlier this year instead of two days before. So maybe um, if I can get together some people, that would be great. We'll have it here at the fellowship hall on a Saturday, I'm thinking, sometime in January. I'll let you know, and, and it'll be in the announcements maybe in the next week or so. Um, and the next one is, of course, our pastor and his family. Um, we want to give him a, a gift from our church. And I know Miranda doesn't want to come up here, right? Correct. <laughs> so, Pastor, this is from our church, and, and we really appreciate everything you and your family do. And, and your growing family, we're excited for that. So. All right, thank you. God bless. 
Thanks, thanks, Dean. Yes. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah, Allison just mentioning if there's any needs in terms of food needs, the food pantry is well stocked. So talk to Allison or Diane or Anita, someone who's involved with the food pantry, if you know of someone with, uh, with a need in that area. All right. I'd like to open our service this morning with a call to worship from Scripture. So let's stand together as I read from Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you'd Give your blessing to us this morning as we come to your word, as we sing your praises, as we come to you in prayer, that as we come to you, that you would speak to us, and that, Lord Jesus, as you came into the world, the King of glory laid in the manger, that you would be here among us by the presence of your Spirit, that you, the King, would dwell among us and work among us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd open your hymnals to number 270, we'll open our service by singing Joy to the World in the Blue Book. 270 in the Blue Hymnal, Joy to the World. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart seated at this time.
Um, and Dean and Bill, could I have you come forward to take the offering this morning? Father, in this season of rejoicing, we're reminded of the many blessings you give us. We thank you for the many ways you provide for us, financially, with clothes, with housing, or with food to eat. We acknowledge that every good gift is from you. We ask, Lord, that you'd uh, bless our giving as we give to the work of your church and the advancement of your gospel, that these funds would be used wisely and for your glory in liberty and around the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Advent reading for this fourth Sunday in Advent is going to be found in Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah 25 is a hopeful chapter, page 548 in your pew Bibles. It speaks of a coming day when the Lord will make things new. It's a chapter we can read in the hope of Christ's second coming, that he will accomplish these things. Isaiah 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. 
This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab will be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands, and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. This is the word of God. Aiden, would you like the the candles for the fourth Sunday in Advent. Good job. Thanks, buddy. You can open your green book. And stand together. We're going to sing number 204, All Glory Be to Christ. And then immediately after that, number 46.
to number 46, which is Psalms, Psalm 46, our refuge, God of Israel. God is our refuge and our strength, our presence help in doubt and pain. Our hearts will never feel dismay. The earth beneath our feet give way, though mountains fall into the sea, and waters fierce and stormy be, though earth may shake with swelling tide, the Lord our God is at our side. There is a river flowing grand whose Take some time now to go to the Lord together in prayer. Lord God, our heavenly King, our almighty God, our loving Father, we come to you this morning to worship you, to give you thanks, and to praise you for your glory. Lord Jesus, Son of the Father, Lord God, Lamb of God, seated at the right hand of the Father, have mercy on us as you're seated at the right hand interceding for us. Please receive our prayer. We acknowledge, Father, that you are the one true God. There is none like you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We come to you and praise you this morning. As we praise you, Father, we acknowledge how far we fall short of your glory. We know that to you, God, all hearts are open, all desires known, 
and that from you no secrets are hid. And so we acknowledge in this morning and lament our sins and our offenses against you, God. We confess them to you and we, we say, Lord, that we are deeply sorry for these our transgressions. Because when we understand fully the reality of our sin and the reality of your holiness, when that grips us, the burden of our sin is more than we can bear. And so with that great burden, we throw ourselves on your mercy. We throw ourselves on Jesus. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would have a mercy on us. That for the sake of your death and your resurrection, your blood shed for us, that you would forgive us all that is past. And that you would grant that we may forevermore serve and please you in newness of life to the honor and glory of your name. Let's take a moment to silently confess our sins to God. Hear the word of God to all who truly turn to him. From 1 Timothy 1, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And from 1 John 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We thank you, Father, for the grace you've shown us in Jesus. That if we come to you in Jesus' name, you do not judge us according to our sins, but according to the righteousness of Christ. And that as you look to him and his finished work, you look at us as fully forgiven, wiped clean, and given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that if we are in Jesus, you no longer look at us as enemies. You no longer count our sins against us, but that you count us as friends, sons and daughters seated at the table of the King. We thank you, Father, for all that you've done for us in Jesus. This is our great joy and our great hope. I ask, Lord, that you'd be at work among us in the rest of our service this morning, that you, Lord Jesus, would be lifted up and glorified, that you would plant our joy more, more fully, more deeply rooted in Jesus and in all that he has done, so that when the presents are all opened and the eggnog is all gone, we would still be rejoicing in the coming of the King, God with us, Emmanuel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray as Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. You can open your hymnals to number 250. That's 250 in the blue book. And uh, as we prepare our hearts to come to God's word this morning, let's sing O Little Town of Bethlehem.
Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to be uh, to begin in verse 18. Matthew 1, that's, uh, let's see, that's page 757 in your pew Bible, if you're following along there. Matthew chapter 1. We're a week away from Christmas, and in all likelihood, your, your halls are decked, your tree is trimmed, uh, and uh, the lights are up. Perhaps you have somewhere in your house a, a nativity scene. Of course, most of us have these, right? This little creche with you know, figures of Jesus and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and perhaps the wise men. And, uh, and they all look so serene, don't they? so peaceful with smiles on their faces calmly looking over the the sleeping baby in the manger maybe you've received christmas cards by this point which depicts in painted form right the the nativity scene with halos around their heads and light shining off of the clean smiling sleeping face of baby jesus this is the image we have in our minds, maybe. This is even what we sing, right? Silent night, holy night. Or in Away in a Manger, right? The, the, the sleeping Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, right? This is the image we, we like to imagine. When in fact, that popular image is, is probably not at all 
what that room looked like. Part of the misconception comes with a mistranslation of the word in. We're told that the in was full. That's actually the same word that's translated later in the Gospels to refer to the upper room that Jesus and his disciples met in. It's not referring to the Motel 8. It's, re- it's referring to a spare room. Right? And commonly, the way these houses in the ancient Near East were structured, you've got basically two stories. The first story is a large room, half of which is the living room where you eat and sleep, and half of which is where the animals stay. And upstairs, you have a spare room, the upper room, and this is where you put guests up if they come over. And so what's being described when we're told that there's no room in the inn is that Joseph and Mary knocked on their unsuspecting relatives, maybe, someone to stay with them, and they say, well, there's no room in the, uh, in the spare room, in the upper room. But you're welcome to stay with us. You'll just have to sleep where the animals typically sleep when we bring them in at night. And so Mary and Joseph are not alone. They're in a crowded house, already overfull, in a crowded city filled with people come for the census. And so imagine that scene, right? They're in a crowded house. Mary's in labor for hours. There's no running water. A baby is born, probably not sweetly sleeping right out of the womb crying loudly. There's the mess of birth. The house is crowded. This is not a sweet, serene scene. This is, this is a chaotic scene. This is a disruptive scene. Childbirth is disruptive. And even the fact of Mary's pregnancy wasn't a joy at first. It was disruptive. Now that's really what we're going to look at this morning in Matthew chapter 1, where Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant. And Joseph and Mary were engaged, and not engaged like we get engaged today. Today people are, you know, they get engaged and they'll call it off, they go back and forth. Engagement in this day was basically already marriage. The covenant was in place, only you weren't yet yet living together as husband and wife. There was a covenantal contractual agreement between two families already in place, and Mary and Joseph were beginning to to put things in place to build a life together. They're beginning to put their best laid plans together, a three-year plan, five-year plan, whatever. Joseph's planning, and then he hears, we don't know from whom, maybe from Mary herself, Mary's pregnant. And this can mean only one thing. Mary's been unfaithful. And this can mean only one thing for Joseph. It all has to be called off. But he doesn't call it off. Why? The beginning of this passage, as we're about to read, Joseph is ready to call the whole thing off, and by the end, he changes his mind. Why? Because an angel appears to him in a dream and tells him the true meaning of this pregnancy, the true identity of this child who is to be born. That this 
unwelcome, unplanned pregnancy, at least unwelcome and unplanned on Joseph's part, though it may have seemed a disruption to him, was a God-giving, saving, long-planned, divine disruption in which God was bringing salvation to the world. The coming of Jesus was a disruption. It is a disruption. At first, to Joseph, an unwelcome disruption. But as we're going to see, the coming of Jesus is the most welcome disruption the world has ever seen. Let's read our passage together, and then we'll pray. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, even as you sent an angel to appear to Joseph and to announce to him the identity of this child who is coming into the world, so too we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would come to us this morning. And in the words of this angel, that you would announce to our hearts and to our minds the coming and the identity of this Jesus, that we would see him for who he is, not as a domesticated Jesus, but as the disruptive Savior of the world. We ask that this Christmas season, you would be at work in our hearts, Lord Jesus, that we would see you for who you are and rejoice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The coming of Jesus is disruptive. It's disruptive. First, just in the most basic sense, the coming of Jesus was an unwelcome disruption for Joseph. And that's what we've just read. Verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now Mary knows this. Mary knows what's going on. It had been announced to her prior to the conception of Christ by the angel Gabriel all that was going to take place. So Mary's in the know. Joseph is not, which is an interesting part of the story. Mary's in the know, but Joseph is not. Because when the angel finally comes to Joseph, he informs Joseph the baby is conceived by the Holy Spirit. For some reason... Mary didn't tell Joseph, or at least Joseph didn't believe Mary, but I think it's more likely that 
that Mary actually hadn't told Joseph up till this point. Imagine how it would have sounded. After Joseph finds out, right, she's pregnant. Conclusion, she's been unfaithful. Even after our engagement, she's sleeping around. Imagine how it would have sounded, Mary saying, the child's from God. Perhaps she imagined that would, that would be met with scoffs from Joseph. I don't know what was going on in Mary's mind. I imagine, this is speculation, that upon hearing the news from Gabriel, and upon Joseph hearing the news of her pregnancy, I imagine she began to pray as she was treasuring these things up in her heart, that the Lord would make clear to Joseph what was going on. In any case, on Joseph's side, he finds out she's pregnant, and he's not sure what to do. We're told two things about him, that he's a just man, and that he was unwilling for Mary to be put to shame. So on the one hand, he's a righteous man, Commentators seem to indicate this, this means he, he wanted to do right by the Lord in this situation. He understood that Mary had been unfaithful, and according to the custom of the time, the right thing to do is to break this off. But he's also unwilling to put Mary to shame. He could have made it very clear to the whole world what he suspected Mary of. But instead, he handles this quietly. He doesn't want to put Mary to shame, but at the same time, he doesn't believe he can in good conscience still marry her. And so we're told that he resolved to divorce her quietly. He hadn't acted on this yet. And in verse 20, we're told that as he considered these things, an angel came to him. So I imagine him lying on his bed, unable to sleep in the middle of the night, wrestling through these questions in his mind, unable to resolve them. And maybe in a moment of drowsiness, he falls asleep and a dream, an angel appears to him. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The first thing the angel tells Joseph about this child, about this unwelcome disruption of a pregnancy, is that this is a God-given disruption. That this child has been conceived by the will of God. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And what perhaps may not have been believed from Mary's mouth, Joseph believes from the words of an angel. This child is from God. This child is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And I imagine two things were going on in Joseph's mind and heart. First, relief. Phew. I didn't, I didn't think Mary was capable of that. I didn't, I didn't suspect her of unfaithfulness. It was a shock to hear it. And now Joseph is confirmed, no, she, she hadn't been unfaithful. In fact, she'd been faithful to what the Lord had called her to, to bear the Son of God. So two reactions from Joseph, I think. Relief and then wondering, pondering. What might this mean? This is, this is unheard of. 
Ever since the creation of the world, there's only one way that new human beings are brought into the world. That's through the union of a husband and a wife, through the union of a man and a woman. That's how children are born. And yet here, Joseph is being told, a child is going to be born who has no human father. This child will be born of the Holy Spirit. And this puts this child in a unique category in which only three people have ever existed, which is those people who have no human father, which would be Adam, Eve, and Jesus. Adam formed out of the dust by God. Eve formed out of Adam's rib. And Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's virgin womb. What must this mean? I imagine Joseph pondered this. What must this mean? This is a thing unheard of. This has never happened since the beginning of the world. That God, by his Holy Spirit, would conceive a son. What must this mean? Well, the angel explains. Verse 21. I I suspect Joseph... Joseph figured this child must be of some significance. If an angel is coming and announcing this holy, divine birth, who must this child be? The angel tells him, verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This unwelcome disruption is, according to the angel, a God-given disruption, and secondly, a saving disruption. This child is coming to save his people from their sins. It's interesting, in verse 21, he assigns Mary and Joseph jobs. He says, here's what's going to happen. Mary's going to give birth to a son. And then you, Joseph, and the language is quite quite clear here. He's referring to Joseph in the singular. You have the responsibility to name this boy. The The Lord is calling Joseph through the angel to take responsibility for this child who's not his, first by saying, you stick, stick around with Mary. Don't put her away. And you stick around for this boy. You, Joseph, actually have the responsibility to name him. I'll tell you the name. God's the father here of, of Christ. But he, he entrusts Joseph with the responsibility. And the name he gives him is a name we're very familiar with, Jesus. Jesus, which in Hebrew is actually the same name as the, the name Joshua. We translate it differently in, in English. It's the same name, Yeshua. And it means God saves. God saves. And God used Joshua in the Old Testament to deliver his people, to save them into the promised land. And God was going to use this Jesus for a much greater salvation. A salvation the angel describes. He will save his people from their sins. From their sins. This Savior will come with a solution for the deepest human problem. A Savior was coming now, born of God in a way not seen since the garden, to solve the problem of the curse which had plagued humanity ever since the garden. Remember those first humans who were born not of a human father, formed by God, Adam and Eve, 
And what happened to them in their paradise of a garden? They turned from God, they disobeyed him, they believed the lie of the serpent. And they were cast out of the presence of God. And as they were, God announced what would be the consequence. The curse of sin and death was to fall on them and on the whole human race. And this eternal winter of sin, this long darkness of the curse, still lies upon the earth even today. This is the reason people die. This is the reason for everything that is wrong with the world, is that we have turned from our God, we've turned from our Creator. That Adam and Eve and all of us in them have turned aside from God and brought upon ourselves the curse of sin and death. But even as Adam and Eve were on their way out of the garden, God, in cursing the serpent, gave them just the pinprick, smallest pinprick of a hope. We've talked about this before in our series through Genesis. Genesis 3, verse 15, in, in cursing Satan, the serpent, the Lord prophesies that there's going to be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That Satan and his minions are going to be locked in this battle with Eve and her descendants. And that one day, a son from the line of Eve, a son born of a woman, would crush the serpent's head. And his, his heel would be bruised by, the, by Satan. And so this, there's this prophecy, even in the very beginning, of a coming Savior, of someone who's going to undo the works of the devil, of someone who's going to lift the curse of sin, crush that ancient serpent, and deliver humanity from the curse of sin. That's right at the very beginning. And what do we find now? Here announced to Joseph, a Savior, Yeshua, God saves, who will save his people from their sins. And who is he to be born of? The Holy Spirit and a daughter of Eve. Born from this line of Eve, a son of Eve, come to crush the head of the serpent, come to deliver his people from their sins. And little could Joseph and Mary imagine the day which would come a matter of decades later when this child now a man, would be found hanging from a Roman instrument of torture outside the gates of Jerusalem. That this Jesus, this Savior of the world, this child conceived by the Holy Spirit, this snake crusher, hung on a cross, crucified, suffering, shamed, and killed. And on that cross, as Jesus died, this Savior of the world he swallowed up the curse. He took on himself the sins of his people. He bore on himself the punishment which ought to be poured out upon us. He swallowed the curse in our place so that it might be lifted up of, off of our shoulders. So that the eternal winter of the curse of sin might be thawed in our own hearts. And then he rose again from the grave for our resurrection and our life.
Who is this unwelcome disruption, Joseph? He's a God-given disruption. He's a saving disruption. This is Jesus, the Savior. And in verse 22, the, the gospel writer Matthew informs us, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes from prophet, the prophet Isaiah. We'll get to that in a second. But first, I want to consider just this phrase. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Jesus' birth was not in Joseph's three-year plan, but it was in God's plan, a plan stretching all the way back to the garden, the promise of the one who would crush the serpent, and even stretching farther past that. In Ephesians 1 and other places, Scripture teaches that the coming of Jesus was the culmination of an eternal plan of God whose foundations were laid even before the foundation of the world. That from all eternity, God had planned to send his son in love after us to redeem us, to save us from the curse of sin and death. The coming of this Jesus, this son, was a God-given disruption, a saving disruption. Joseph figured, this is going to disrupt my plans. We can see Jesus was coming to disrupt the curse, to break death, to disrupt the stranglehold of sin on this earth. And finally, we see again now in verse 23 that the coming of this Jesus is a divine disruption. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew here is quoting from the prophet Isaiah, who in Isaiah 7 uttered these words in a conversation with King Ahaz. And in prophesying the destruction of Ahaz's enemies and the destruction of Judah, the Lord gives Ahaz this sign. You watch. A virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And by the time that happens, the nations you're so afraid of will be gone. And your nation, Judah, will have fallen. You watch for the sign. And it took many centuries. But here's the sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And this is one passage which fits together with all the other passages in Isaiah and the rest of the Old Testament, looking forward, pointing forward to this Savior, this Son of Eve, this Son of David, this Messiah, who would save the world from our sins. And it's no wonder Matthew quotes this passage here. It's fitting. It explains why Jesus was born of a virgin. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This is Mary. And it also gives Jesus another name, which helps us to understand his identity. What's going on here? Again, that question I'm sure was in Joseph's mind. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, what must this mean? What is God doing? This is unheard of in the history of the world. What is going on in my fiancé? What's happening there? What is God doing? And Matthew explains for us in this second name of Jesus, Emmanuel, which in Hebrew means, as Matthew translates it, God with 
us. God with us. Jesus is Jesus. He's the salvation of God, but he's also God with us. Which hints at the most disruptive, the most earth-shattering reality about this Jesus. That there in the manger at the coming, at Jesus' coming at Christmas, God was dwelling among us. And this gets at the core of what we celebrate at Christmas, the core of what we believe as Christians, that in the person of Jesus Christ, God dwelt bodily. That in the person of Jesus Christ, God has actually come near. God has actually entered into his creation in the person of Jesus Christ, who was and is truly God and truly man, God with us. And the implications of this begin to unfold on out to eternity once we begin to consider them. Again, think back to the garden, think back to the curse. When Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, remember there was an angel stationed at the entrance of the garden, at the gates, with a flaming sword, and this symbolizes, this shows, human beings under the curse of sin are no longer allowed into the presence of God. We've been cast out, or maybe more accurately, we've cast ourselves out by our sin. A sinful people cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. And this grief, this wound, is the great grief beneath all other griefs. The great longing underneath all other longings. The great brokenness, the great rift underneath everything that's wrong with the world. Because we were made to know and love and enjoy the presence of God. We were made to walk with him. We were made to know him. We were made to love him and to obey him. And by tearing ourselves away from him in the fall, we've actually torn ourselves away from the only one who can truly give us rest. It was Augustine who said, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. And so we long for this. And then the skeptics say, well, where is God if he exists? Where can we see him? Where can we hear from him if there is this God? Well, the fact is we've alienated ourselves from him. We've turned aside from him. We don't want to see him. And the blazing reality of the incarnation of Christ is actually in the person of Jesus. God has come near. God has revealed himself. If you're looking for God, you need to look no further than the person of Jesus Christ. God with us. God come to dwell among us. And not just God come to us, but God come to us to save us and to bring us back to himself. When we were running from him, headlong into destruction, like sheep from a shepherd, stuck in the thorns, God came after us in kindness and in love, humbling himself to the point of being born as a baby and laid in a feeding trough of a poor family in a backwater region. God with us. God in love come after us to bring us back to himself. Coming of Jesus is a great disruption. A blessed, welcome disruption. 
not for Joseph at first. But as he comes to realize this is a God-given disruption, this is a saving disruption, this is a planned disruption, a divine disruption, not just of Joseph's three-year plan, but of the curse which lays upon the world, Jesus has come to break it, to lift it, and to usher in an eternal kingdom of life and of salvation. And this is our hope, not only that Jesus has come, but that Jesus will come again. And we long for him to come and to establish fully and finally his eternal kingdom of light to banish all darkness from the world, to eliminate the final consequences of the curse and to deliver us into life everlasting. The coming of Jesus is a wonderful, blessed glorious disruption of everything that needs to be torn down in this world and in our hearts. And so I would encourage you this Christmas season not to domesticate Jesus. The story of Jesus is not a nice story to keep contained in your manger scene. The story of Jesus is the universal story which will one day swallow up death forever. The story of Christmas is the story of the salvation and the redemption of the cosmos. And you are caught up in that story, whether you know it or not. Don't domesticate Jesus. The coming of Jesus is a great and wonderful and blessed disruption. And those of us who know him know full well that as, as soon as we come in contact with the real Jesus, that as soon as the Holy Spirit begins to work upon our hearts in the power of the word, we don't get to remain the same. The coming of Jesus into our hearts is a great, sometimes painful, absolutely wonderful disruption. And I'd want to encourage you this Christmas that if you do not know the Lord, that this might be the first Christmas that you celebrate Christmas as it actually should be celebrated. Not as a mere rejoicing in pre presence and eggnog, which will end by January 1st, but as a celebration of the eternal kingdom of God and of the salvation of Jesus Christ, of which there will be no end. That's the rejoicing we get to step into. If you don't know that rejoicing, step into it today. Come to Jesus. Turn from your sins. Throw yourself on him for forgiveness. Bow your knee to the king in the manger. God with us, Emmanuel. And for those of us who know him, my encouragement for us in the next week, two weeks, is rejoice. Rejoice, your king has come, and he's coming again. Emmanuel, God with us. Celebrate the love of God in Jesus Christ. My prayer is that our homes, our families, our church communities would be characterized by and known by our great ability to party at Christmas. Don't be out-celebrated by the people around you at Christmas. 
you have, we have so much more to rejoice in at Christmas. We who know the Savior, we who have come to know Emmanuel. The coming of Jesus is a great, a God-given, a saving, a long-planned, a wonderful, divine, joyful disruption. Let's celebrate it this week. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you teach us to rejoice in Jesus. We ask that day by day you would give us a clearer understanding of the magnitude of what he has done and is doing. We pray, Lord, that as we look forward to the coming of Jesus in his second coming, that you would prepare us to receive him, that we would be found ready. We pray, Lord, that, um, that each of us may look to Jesus and have received him as Savior and as Lord in his first coming, so that his, in his second coming we would be brought into his eternal kingdom. We look forward to that. We look forward to all things being made new. We look forward to death being swallowed up forever as we read in our Isaiah reading this morning. We long for that day. We pray that as we long for it, we would rejoice this year at Christmas time in the coming of Emmanuel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing the doxology as we finish this morning. Praise God from whom all Thank you.